Thanks, Vanessa. Uh, welcome to church. I want to add my welcome uh, to Mings. My name is Rowan, one of the pastors here. Um, and tonight we get to look into this part of God's Word and see the next installment from Luke, the medical doctor, who's explaining to us the life of Jesus and the significance He has for us. And it's my prayer that tonight, as we look at this passage, that we'll come out and see what life lived with true joy is. So why don't we pray that God would help us to do that now. Father God, as we have just heard your word read, as we have heard the truths about your son Jesus and the events that went on around his life, we ask that your word tonight, through the work of your spirit, would show us your view of the world. That we might come away from tonight, not having merely heard words, but have heard you speak to us. We pray, Lord, that tonight you might continue to shape and mould our view to be your view, to see the world through your eyes. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Joy. It's a funny little word, isn't it? You look at it for long enough and the wire just gets awkward there, hanging on the end. Have you ever tried that? Just keep looking. Don't feel awkward yet. It's just this word that we kind of don't use very much. We don't use very much at all. It's kind of slipping away from common use in today's society. It's something that we don't speak of, but we all desire. It just means pleasure and happiness, excitement, elation. And it seems that nearly every person on the face of the planet has this inbuilt desire to be happy, to experience joy. What do we want to do in life? We want to enjoy it, don't we? But not all of us have joy. It seems elusive, like trying to catch the wind. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? You kind of look like some awkward Mr. Bean. Um, my first name works with Rowan, I can't remember his last name, Atkinson. There you go. Uh, but I, I can't even be as awkward as him. Uh, joy can be a thing that we're trying to chase after, but we never achieve Once you feel like you've got it in your hands, it can be whisked away by the the trials of life, the failure of ourselves or others, or the promise of the next great thing, another great joy down the road, and it just disappears in front of us. The fact that we desire joy isn't up for debate. It just seems that it's hardwired into every person, stitched into the fabric of what it means to be human. But the question for us is, how do we find it? How do we find true joy and happiness? Now, we could go around and canvas all the available options, try out everything that exists to mankind, although that might backfire in our faces as we find out things that don't provide joy. You know, oh, I wonder what it feels to stick my hand in a mousetrap. Like, that is not joy. But maybe we need to experience that to work it out. Is that what life's about? Walking around, sticking our fingers and feet into things and see if they are good, they provide happiness. How do we find out what joy is? Well, I want to put it to you that the God who hardwired us together... The God who claimed to have made every person in this room and every person on the face of the planet has spoken about how to find joy. This God has recorded for us here through the writing of Luke, the medical doctor, an almost unique experience that helps us to understand what true joy is. How do we find true joy? I want to put it to you. We go to the God who made us. And we hear what he says brings joy. And in this passage tonight, we get one of the only two times in the accounts of all the Gospels that Jesus is recorded giving the reason for experiencing joy. The reason why he rejoices is right here in that passage that Vanessa just read to us. It's one of those passages today that we will see what joy is, what deep satisfying and all-encompassing joy looks like. But we won't understand the joy of Jesus unless we understand what's about to happen in this story that Luke has been laying out for us. As I said, Luke's a medical doctor and he's been collecting together for his friend Theophilus all the accounts in existence of this Jesus that's captured his life. 
He's excited to show people who he is, what he's done, with the precision and eye of a medical doctor around the life of this man, Jesus. And as we saw last week, there's a new chapter happening in the life of Jesus, a new stage. As we get to the end of chapter 9, we see Jesus very clearly setting out for Jerusalem. He's like a man with a one-track mind that he is going straight there. Have a look, chapter 9, verse 51, should be on the screen. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. This is not just kind of Jesus was sitting around one day playing PlayStation. You know what? I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to hang out. You know, this might be fun. I'll check out with the scribes there. We'll hang around in like the temple that's there for, for my father. This has been a specific plan that he had, a quite clear plan that he knows that he's going to do what he came to do. And that is to die. That's his plan. From this point on, Luke shows that Jesus single-mindedly is walking to his death. And as he's going, he's showing all around him what it looks like to follow the king and who the king is. And he's sending out his message along the way. Now, at first sound, it doesn't sound like a very joyous occasion, does it? It's kind of like he's walking to his death. Woo! I'm excited. But we'll see it brings about an occasion for the deepest joy that we can have. But in order to see that, we need to see the mission that he's on. So Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus collects people We said that early on in the Gospel of Luke. He collected 12 apostles, 12 followers that would be his kind of closest friends and the people who would teach to take out the news of who he is and what he had done. But here, he kind of goes to the next ring out. He gathers 70 or or maybe some of your Bibles say 72 followers. In fact, we're not quite sure. There's one early manuscript that says 70 and another one that says 72. And there's a bit of um, confusion about how many there is. We're not actually quite sure how many there were. And that will become important in a minute, I think. But however many they were and whoever they are, Jesus sends them out to go ahead of him and prepare the towns that he's about to go into. The mission he sends these people out on is a preparatory mission, preparatory for him coming through on his walk to death. And he sets up these people to experience true joy in a way that's, number one, dangerous. The mission they're on is dangerous. Look at verse 3. Now go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Now, just the other day, um, we've been on holidays for the last two weeks, and we came back into Auckland after being out at Waihee and hung out at, uh, at Cornwall Park, and there's all these cute little lambs running around. I don't know if you've seen them. They're kind of little and fluffy and nice, and they're kind of, it's great, exciting to see these lambs around. My kids, they loved it. I want you to imagine for a moment a lamb, a little cute lamb, walking amongst a pack of wolves. Jesus is going to point us to true joy through this. And he says, this is what they've been called to do. It doesn't sound very joyous. Jesus' message beforehand and afterwards has been causing controversy left, right and center. John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for the Lord, his head was given on a platter to Herod. He wasn't connected to it. There's there's great hostility against this message of Jesus. The mission that they are on is dangerous. But not only is it dangerous... The mission they are to go on is a mission where they are to be dependent, trusting truly in God. Look at verse 4. He says, When you go amongst the wolves, don't carry a money bag, a traveling bag or sandals. Don't pack your stuff up. Don't kind of get all your clothes together and work out what you're packing for your trip and put all your kind of, or your shaving gear or whatever it is into a little envelope and put it in so they can see it on the plane when you get on. There's none of that, right? He says, Go. Why would he do that? Because he wants these messengers to be vitally clear that they are dependent on God, that this is something God is doing, that they need to trust in God to provide for them, and so they send them out. And he sends them out in a way that's urgent too. This is the second half of um, verse 4 we see. He says, Don't greet anyone along the road. On your way, don't stop and talk. This is the verse for introverts, right? You're like, whew, Jesus says, I don't need to talk to anyone. I'm in my bubble, shut up. 
and you can just move around. Now, we read that today, and it says, you know, don't greet anyone along the road, and that's kind of like normal for us, right? You sit on a bus, there's like, what, 40 people there? And what do we say? And there's someone sitting here, a person, they live and breathe, we don't talk, we're like, occasionally we might get, oh, sorry. The only thing we say is like we kind of, everyone's silent, then suddenly you get off the bus like, thanks driver, that's about it, right? We think, what about the person we're sitting next to for that whole time we're on the bus? The kind of culture today is that we just sit down and shut up, we don't say anything, but that wasn't their culture. Their culture was when you're walking along the road and you see someone, you say, hey, how are you doing? And you do that today, you walk along the road, you say to someone, hey, how are you doing? They're like, hey, hey, I haven't got any money. Like, everyone's like, whoa, what is that guy doing? He's a freak. But here, Jesus is saying there's an urgency about. You don't even have time to go through the normal cultural protocol. You need to go out, you need to go into these towns and these places, and you need to not stop and talk to people and have a yarn on the side of the road. You need to get where you need to get to. And he says, when you're trying to find accommodation, go into the towns, the first place that says you can stay there, go, I'm in. Don't be like, oh, I really like a harder bed. You know, and so go to another house. Oh, have you guys got somewhere for me to stay? Can I hang around with you guys? He says, no, get in. There's an urgency about this message. What is going on? Well, Jesus is likening this whole time to the time of harvest. Now, if you've got a farm background at all, you know that the time of harvest is a key time if you're a farmer. You spend all year getting your crops to grow and, and kind of feeding them and protecting them and seeing them get bigger and bigger. And the time of harvest is when you come in and you collect all the crop that, that, that's grown. It's when you make your money. Your year's salary happens in harvest. And what Jesus is saying is now is the time for harvest. Not the time for sitting around. Not the time for standing back. It's the time to get out there with urgency. A great storm could come and wipe out this entire crop. You don't kind of sit back and go, oh, harvest time's here now, the crop's ready, it's going to go on a holiday to France. No, you get involved and you do it. What does all this tell us? This tells us that this mission that Jesus is sending people on is something of the utmost importance and focus. And it requires concentration and commitment and urgency. And what we'll see is the mission that Jesus sends these 70 or 72 messengers on is actually the key to joy. Well, as these messengers go out, we get to hear the content of their message. At the moment, he's just told us how and what their mission is, but we see that the content of the message that they are about to speak is called bringing peace and the news of the kingdom. The content of their message is peace and the news of the kingdom. Have a look at verse 5. Whenever you enter... Sorry, whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. You go, what's that? It's kind of some weird Christian jargonese that you walk into a house and you kind of go, peace to this household, and you kind of wait. It's like the secret code, you know? The elephants are flying and they say, yes, the brandy's good. And you're like, is this, is this some, like secret Inspector Morse kind of code that people have as they, as they speak as secret agents to one another. What is going on here? Well, there was a common greeting of the Jews to express peace, shalom to one another, and something Jews still do today, but here there's something more going on. It's not just peace like we often think, like the, the beauty pageants think. Ever seen a beauty pageant? I don't know, they, they say it in miscongeniality, so it must be true. You know, the, the main thing they say, what do you want to see change in the world? And they go, world peace right? It's not like walk into someone's house and go, world peace. And everyone's like, yes, and we move on. They're talking about peace with God. It's a relational peace. It's peace with the creator of the universe. And I want to push it even further than that. It's not just peace with God, it's peace from God. Peace from God's anger shown towards us. His wrath that we deserve not getting what we do deserve. Peace from the punishment we deserve is what is on offer. What makes me say that? Well, at the very start of Luke's account, he quotes the words of Zechariah. Zechariah is speaking to Elizabeth about the baby growing in her womb that will be John the Baptist, the one who will prepare the way for Jesus to come. And this is what Zechariah says, Luke chapter 1, verse 78. Because of our God's merciful compassion... 
The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's the peace that these messengers are to bring. The peace that involves God's merciful compassion. Remember what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Remember that game? I always use this illustration. I think it's a really helpful illustration. You know, as a kid, you used to, I used to play this game called Mercy, where you grab the hand of someone else, and then you're going to try and push them back until one person screams Mercy. Right? Who's played that game? Nice. Love to see heaps of games happening out here tonight. Anyone who hasn't, just see one of those people with their hands up. Basically, what happens is, the person who wins is the one who's got the most strength. Right? The other person deserves to have their knuckles snapped off because they're weak. Right? That's how the game works. And so you just go trying to twist their knuckles off. And when they scream mercy, what they're saying is, don't snap my knuckles off like I deserve because I'm a weak sibling or whatever it is. They're saying, give me mercy at this point. Well, here, the merciful compassion from God is God not giving us what we do deserve. But we've done more than just had weak knuckles. We've told him that we don't really care about him. We don't want to treat him as the God of our lives. In fact, we'd rather set the rules than let him set the rules. But God has shown merciful compassion. And his compassion, Zechariah says, will dawn from on high to visit us, to shine light on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. These messengers were to bring peace to these households. Jesus is sending out his followers to prepare them for the peace to come, whose name is Jesus, the mercy and compassion of God. But that peace It's just not applied to everyone. See, peace must be accepted. If the people welcomed Jesus' messengers, this is what the messengers would do. do. Have a look in verse 9. If people accepted the message of peace, Jesus says to them, Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick who were there. But if the people rejected the messenger... Well, they were to react in a very different way. But look, they actually use the same words. If the people reject the messenger, verse 10, go out into its streets and say to that town, we are wiping off as a witness against you even the dust of your town that clings to our feet. It's kind of like saying, going to someone's house, right? And you go in and you just you have a really awful dinner and the people don't really care about you. It's really yuck. You stand up and you, you know what? I'm out of here, and you like dust off all the air that's on you. You're like, I don't even want any of the air that's in your house, any of the dust on my feet. Stuff you. You are not getting my presence, the things that I bring. Problem was, the things that these messengers brought were peace from God. But then listen to what they say in the second half of verse 11. Know this for certain the kingdom of God has come near. It's the same words. I tell you, on that day, It will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. See, the message these messengers were to go out and say was the same. It's just that people's response to that message determined what would happen to them. The message was, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign. The time when God would finally put into place what He's always determined for all of history to put in place. That kingdom has come near. And the way people responded to that message changed how it applied to them. Those that accepted the message that the kingdom of God had come near saw an inbreaking of the kingdom. The sick were healed. Now, is, that, is this saying that with Jesus, everyone suddenly gets better, that sickness goes away? No, no, what's going on here is when the sick are healed, it's an inbreaking of the kingdom that's to come. It's saying that the kingdom to come will have no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will be put away. And when Jesus is rightfully king and ruling perfectly, sickness will be a thing of the past. And those that accept this peace that comes, the message of the kingdom of God, see inbreakings of that kingdom. They see sickness being healed. In the Second World War, um, when the war had basically been over, there were still small fronts in different areas that were at battle. Small fronts of people that were still fighting, even though the war centrally had been finished. And 
those fronts did not yet know the news that the war was over. And so what the Allied forces did was they flew care packages in over the places where they were still fighting and dropped in medicine and food and supplies to those places, no longer being shot down. And those that were still at war, feeling like the war was going on, suddenly saw from the sky little inbreakings of what was already true. War was over. <laughs> there was no more need for this fighting and violence. Food had come. They were not quite yet here at this part of the front, but it was coming soon. Well, as Jesus turns up and as people accept the message of this kingdom, we see inbreakings of that kingdom. Sickness healed, life given. But for those that reject the message, Jesus said it would have been better if they'd been burned alive like the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah than reject the news of Jesus. Do you know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? It's Genesis 19 on the screen. Let's have a look. This was a, a town, a people that were so violently opposed to living God's way, that did horrible, detestable things. God said, I'm going to wipe them out. And listen to what he did. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground, all of it, gone. Jesus says, you would have been better off being Sodom and Gomorrah than to have heard, heard the message of the kingdom and rejected it. There is something significant about this message, isn't there? There is an inbreaking, an importance of what is going on about this kingdom of God. To reject the message of Jesus is to reject peace with God. And so you get what you deserve. If I reject God's message, I'm rejecting the, the, the mercy He's showing me. I deserve to be separated from Him. If I say to the God who gives me life, I don't want you, I don't want who you are, I don't even rate you, I don't even think you're here then I will not get his privileges. I will not get life. But what is the future for those who reject the news of this peace? Well, it's war with God. It's war with the one who made us. And I can guarantee you, we won't win. This message that went out did two things. It offered salvation and judgment. And Jesus says in verse 16... Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. To reject the messenger of God, who has been sent by God the Son, is to reject the Creator Himself. The consequences are serious. Now, we need to remember that these messengers are going out most probably to Jewish towns across the city. The Jewish towns, these Jewish people, they were people that remembered their history. See, the Jews were traditionally God's people and God had saved them, had brought them out of Egypt and it had been God's special possession. And I think the warning is for those here who are resting in their achievements... They're resting in their inheritance, their privileged position. They're like, I don't need this peace from Jesus, some carpenter born from Nazareth, whatever, get lost. I, I don't, I'm a Jew, God's on my side, why do I need to worry about this stuff? And Jesus says to them, if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile cities, if the miracles that were done here amongst you Jews had been done in a Gentile city, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. There's a second warning for us here. For those of us who feel we're in a privileged position, that we've grown up as God's people, that we, we think, you know, oh, I don't need this peace, I've already got it, I'm a Christian. I don't need to worry about who Jesus is and what He's done and the peace that comes. Oh, I'm living life fine, thanks. To experience true joy, we first need to recognize the depth of the position we're in. None of us are in a privileged position. All of us have rejected God and said to Him, I don't want to treat you as God. None of us have any achievements or goodness to claim that God should show us mercy. 
the message had a strong warning. But what happened? What was the result of this mission? How, how do we see joy come out? Well, look at verse 17 and see what happened. As these people, these 70 or 72 went out. Luke 10, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy. There's our word. They returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Here we see the first glimpse of joy. These, these messengers were blown away at the result of their mission. They'd gone out, they'd seen that the full authority of God the Son was with them. They said stuff and the demons listened. Man, can you imagine that? Can you imagine having that sort of authority and that sort of power? They get this great joy in their amazement at what God had done through them and what Jesus had done through them. They marvel at what they've done. This is amazing. They've driven out demons. The enemy of God had been pushed back and had run away from them, these messengers. And that brought them great joy. God's victory. God was winning. I remember one of the first times I won a conversation with an atheist. You might be here tonight as an atheist. So glad you're here. Love you being here. I remember um, coming across this atheist on university campus and, and chatting about who Jesus is and kind of chatting for about 40, 50 minutes and going backwards and forwards. And usually I'd kind of been, uh, come up against all these sort of questions. I'd, been, I'd done a science degree at university or some of, and we've been talking through some stuff. And I remember the moment where we were standing, there were two of us and this guy, when he couldn't answer my questions anymore. He'd been coming backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and suddenly he went, yeah, I, I, I don't know, I think I'll need to go and have a look at that. And I'm like, yeah, I've won. Right? It was one of those times, like, God, you're awesome. Like, I've actually been able to defend historically the reality of who Jesus is. This is a great day. It's a day when this is a victory for you, surely, but how awesome it is to have kind of won. I don't know if you've had similar experiences. Um, the same kind of thing happened... Um, uh, to me, when I was sharing the news of Jesus with this guy, I remember the first time someone became a Christian through me. I remember where I was sitting, it was at McDonald's, it was right next to the train station. I remember where he was and we were chatting together about what he thought about Jesus. He'd been to a New Year's Eve party and he'd been like, life isn't what, it, what, I, what I thought it was. And I've actually been thinking through these things of Jesus. We talked about um, uh, who Jesus was and what he'd done. And he's like, you know what? I think I need to put my trust in Jesus. I'm like, are you serious? This is awesome. This is great. And I remember that for that first time feeling like, wow, look at what God is doing through me. How great this is. There is a great joy involved with being involved in what God is doing. But if I'm honest, there's also a little bit of humble pride, if there's such a thing. You know that type of thing? God is awesome. You should see what He has done through me. <laughs> we just love having that little part of us in there. Now, what's at stake is eternity. It's an important and, and it is good. But I so often find myself going, look at what I did in Jesus' name. You know, look at what I have done. Look at the way I beat that guy in that conversation. I won. No, I don't get around and say I'm the man. Even I'm Australian and I don't say that. Right? But there's a sense in which you're like, this is great. There's a great joy involved in this. These messengers come back from the mission that was dangerous and urgent with absolute important news about the kingdom of God. And they have great joy at what God did through them. But when we find our greatest joy in what we have done, in our abilities that God has used, we empty ourselves of true joy. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, So what? So what? <laughs> Who do you think you are? Do you think they submit because of who you are? Luke 10, 18, he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. I don't think he's happy with them here. Some people say oh, this is a positive thing. I don't think it is. He's saying, I saw Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. I was there. Do you know who I am? 
Look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. It comes from me. I've given it to you. Nothing will ever harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is saying, it's me that does the work, not you, Rowan. I was there in the beginning. Don't be so proud that you beat an atheist in a conversation. Don't rejoice in your work. Don't rejoice in the fall of others. But rejoice that you are not getting what you deserve. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. We so often settle for second best with joy, don't we? We so often settle for what we have done rather than what God has done. That He has put our names in heaven, in the throne room of God, chiseled in stone that will last forever because we have simply accepted the peace that God has offered. We have simply trusted that Jesus is the King. That's real joy, that we have been forgiven, that our future is not what we deserve, but what Jesus secured for us. And before we see the joy that Jesus has, there's something to kind of stop for a moment and learn about the spread of the gospel. Learn about what evangelism is. We often use this word called evangelism. As a church, we're called Auckland Evangelical Church, and sometimes we get those two terms mixed up. Evangelism is just the news, the spreading of the news of Jesus. Evangelical is a word that really just means gospel. Uh, the word evangel, or euangelion, is the w- Greek word for gospel. And so an evangelical church is a church that's focused on the gospel of Jesus. Gospel means good news. It's a church that's focused on the good news of who Jesus is and what He's done. Evangelism is the telling of that good news. So evangelism is what we do when we go out. It's what these messengers were doing, sharing the news of the kingdom that was to come, that was near. And what we've got to learn in this passage about it is a few helpful things before we see how that joy is made complete. The first thing that we note is that it is God who does the work of the sharing of the kingdom. Yes, He uses messengers, but the messengers are nobodies. The, 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 the nobodies that God uses, we don't even know how many of them there were or what their names were. But what we do know is that God is the one who gives the authority. So often I fall into the trap when I share the news about Jesus, of thinking, you know what, as I told that person about Jesus and I came up with those awesome illustrations, I did a pretty good job. You know, and we have confidence in what we do and we start to attribute what has gone on to us. But here we'll see tonight that it's got nothing to do with us. But the other end of the extreme is, is there too, isn't it? Where we think, I can't share the news of Jesus. I'm not good enough. I don't have the skills. I don't have the knowledge. I don't, I don't have the kind of prestige. I don't know what to say. We come across someone that is kind of in some way intimidating. We're like, oh, they might ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. And so we don't speak it. The encouragement here is these messengers are nobodies. They're not tasked to go out and, and answer every single question. They're tasked to go out and proclaim that the kingdom has come near. That's it. There's one qualification in order to tell the gospel. Jesus is your king and you trust him. That's it. A friend of mine summarizes the news of the gospel like this. He says, God made it, we broke it, he fixed it. God made it, we broke it, he fixed it. God made the world, we broke it, he fixed it in Jesus. The kingdom is near. The King has come who's brought peace. We don't need to argue people into the kingdom. We proclaim the news of who Jesus is. We skipped a verse at the top in verse 2 because I wanted to come back to it now. In verse 2, we actually see who is the driving force behind this work. Look at verse 2. He told them, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The great problem with the spread of the kingdom isn't that people are too hard. It isn't that there's not enough people out there to to be able to hear the news of Jesus. The problem with the spread of the kingdom 
is that there aren't enough workers. The harvest is abundant, Jesus says. The work has been done by God to raise up people so that they might hear the news of Jesus. But unless you go out and collect, unless workers go out and reap what God has grown, the kingdom is not going to grow. The reason that we don't see more people coming to Christ is a lack of prayerful, dependent, broken messengers who will speak simply the news of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. How do we see this news of the kingdom spread? What do we learn about evangelism from here? (laughs) That the most important thing to do is pray because it is God who sends workers for the harvest. And He seems to be limiting the reaping of the harvest to our asking Him to raise up workers. I want to implore us as a church to pray daily that God would be raising up people to go out and and, and share the news of of this kingdom. People who are happy to just proclaim who Jesus is and what He has done for them. God broke it. He, we broke it. Sorry, God made it. We broke it. He fixed it. But it's something that I don't pray for enough. Maybe pray and ask God to help you work out how you can be a worker in His harvest field. Where you can be sharing the news of the kingdom that you trust in. Recently, someone came to me and said, look, I've been thinking about taking a day off work, a fortnight, because I just want to see the work of the kingdom keep going out and be involved with what church is doing here. Maybe that's something you could think through. For others, it might mean stay in where you are, work there, intentionally spend time with others, speaking of this king whom you love, who you know has died for you. You're trying to coerce people into the kingdom or argue them into something that's going to bring you glory and honor. You're pointing them to what is true, to the king. Or could it be that God is calling you here tonight into what I call career diversion? You were set off on one path to serve God in one area, but as you keep thinking through the urgency of this message, As you keep reflecting on the gifts that God has given you, you think maybe you could be used more fruitfully by stopping that career that you're going on and freeing yourself up to be doing full-time gospel ministry. To think through where you could take on an area of responsibility and think, is this something I could keep growing and maybe stop doing this and be able to serve God in that way? The harvest is abundant but the workers are few. And we find ourselves positioned on a university campus filled full of 40,000 students. We include AUT as well. How many people are there here? Imagine if God raised up many, many workers to reap in His already abundant harvest of people that they might see the news of the kingdom. That's something I want to pray for something we have the great privilege of partnering with God in asking Him to do. So pray, won't you, that God would raise up workers. Think hard. How will you use your life for His glory? Well, joy, Jesus says, joy is not found in bringing the rebellious down but in lifting the rebellious up. Joy is not found in winning the atheist, looking at our own work as rebellious people and going, how great we are. Joy is found in God lifting us, the rebellious, up so that our names might be written in heaven. That is true joy. That's the joy that Jesus speaks of. In fact, He says the thing that gives Him joy, the thing that makes Him rejoice. And here we get this moment. Where do we find the greatest joy? Jesus says the greatest joy is the fact 
that the entire task of mission and the spread of the kingdom of God, the whole purpose and point and focus of all human history and creation and the universe is in the hands of the Father. That's what gives Jesus joy. Look at verse 21 of chapter 10. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. Jesus, he, he rejoices in his Father. We get a, a kind of a hint here into this God who is three persons as well. You have the person of the Son, the person of the Spirit, and the person of the Father together in this mission. And Jesus rejoices in the Father through the Spirit because irrespective of our perceived wisdom, irrespective of our abilities and intellectual prowess, God reveals His kingdom to babes like you and me. Jesus stands back and says, God, you're good. Because you use the nobodies. You use people, we don't even know how many there were, let alone what their names were, to bring about the salvation of many and glory to our God. But it's even more than that. Jesus rejoices because God has revealed this news to babes, but on the other hand, has hidden these things from the wise and learned. Now you read that and you're like, how is that cause for joy? How is it that, that God has actually hidden this news from some people and that causes Jesus to rejoice? Well, what is going on there? Well, I think what's going on is that God, through infants like you and me and these 70 nobodies He sent out, enables the unveiling of things that prophets and kings have longed to see and hear since the beginning of time. The thing that excites Jesus is that not that these messengers had kind of skills and abilities, but that God used no one, nobodies, nothings, to bring about the end of the ages. Jesus stands back and goes, man, you're good. You've hidden it from those who are the A-team and you've used the kind of dropouts and now your kingdom is being revealed. People are knowing something that has been hidden for age upon age upon age. Look at verse 24. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see the things that you see, yet didn't see them. To hear the things that you hear, yet didn't hear them. See, it wasn't through the special. It wasn't through the wise and learned or the powerful and the influential. But through babes and nobodies. And people without a fancy name at all, that God revealed the most incredible name in history. The name of Jesus. The name that is above all other names. That He is the King of God's kingdom. Friends, when the identity of Jesus is revealed, that makes God look good. No matter what the response is. No matter whether people accept Him or reject Him. Here's the offensive news. The ultimate goal of the universe isn't primarily the salvation of us. It's not about you and me. It's about God and His goodness and rightness and glory shown in Jesus. It's about revealing the King who is the Son. It's about Jesus being proclaimed as He really is. The King of the universe is here. A King who saves, yes, but it's primarily about this King. God contradicts what human effort might expect in this situation. He hides from the wise and reveals to the most helpless and unaccomplished people. And when Jesus sees the Father freely enlightening and saving people whose only hope is the free gift that Jesus offers, who've got nothing else to offer in and of themselves, He, together with the Holy Spirit, takes immense pleasure and joy in the Father's sovereign choice. That's why Jesus rejoices. That's why he calls the 70 to rejoice as well, because through this King, the work of the Father revealing Jesus to them, their infant and unknown and good-for-nothing names are written in heaven, in the throne room of God. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, this makes God look good. 
that if you trust in Jesus, no matter who you are, and through the most unlikely people of all history, your names can be written in heaven forever. And that makes God look good. So many of my efforts and desires for joy on this earth are aimed at securing a name for myself. Do you find that? I care about my reputation because I care about what people think about me because, well, I I want a good reputation. I want a good name. My thinking, my actions, my efforts, my achievements, I think they'll somehow secure me renown that others will say, Rowan is this or is that, and isn't he great? But how fragile and precarious is my self-made position compared to the immovable and everlasting position my name has been given because of Jesus that had nothing to do with me. I try and build a name for myself on earth that can be trampled on and walked over and fall apart so simply, yet what has been offered to me through nothing that I have done is my name in heaven forever. That's why we rejoice. Because God is good. His love is unmatched. His goodness is incomparable. And His glory, the glory that we get to share in, the glory of His kingdom where our names are engraved in stone, that glory is eternal. You might be in the middle of a shocker of a season of your life right now. It might feel like the world around you is crumbling down, like everything is going to cast it. And you're like, how can I seek joy now? It's all very well to say this stuff. But if Jesus is your king, then you are part of his kingdom. You have great joy to celebrate, for your name is engraved in the throne room of God. So Jesus commands, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the glory we will share with our king. No matter what the circumstances of life are now, No matter what is going on, no matter what God is doing through you, don't rejoice in what you do, but rejoice in what God has done. Don't let the hardships and the struggles and the trials and the suffering rob you from the joy of knowing that your name is fixed in heaven if you only accept the one who brings peace. If you only make Jesus your king. I think God in his goodness has a great sense of humor. One of the things that we so often strive for is a special name, a name that others would kind of look upon. We want our name to be known by others. And the kind of pinnacle of Hollywood doing that is Hollywood Boulevard, isn't it? Where the stars, the kind of famous people with renown, get their names put on the footpath in Hollywood Boulevard, where you're like, wow, my name is in the footpath. And where has God and His providence allowed that renown to be? On the place that everyone walks over stuck in the ground in front of us, trampled under our feet. God is saying to us tonight, don't seek joy and glory that will only lead to others walking over it and it disappearing when the footpath gets changed. But look to heaven, where your name is written forever if you trust in Jesus. Far better than any Hollywood footpath is the throne room of God. And if you have trusted in Jesus, then that is the joy that you get to celebrate. That is the joy you get to be a part of. If you trust in Jesus, your name is written in stone, for God has done it because of nothing to do with you. And if that's your joy, if that's what you live for, then pray, won't you? Because the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Ask yourself this day, Will I go to my neighbor? Will I go to my family? Will I go to my friend? Not with all the answers, but with the news that the kings and prophets long to know that Jesus is the king of the universe, that he has come and died and offered you and me life, that the best thing we can do, the most urgent thing we can do, the most important and dangerous, risky, yes, but valuable thing that we can do is to make Jesus our king, And live for the glory and joy we've been offered in Him. Friends, I want to ask you tonight. Is Jesus your King?
Is he the one who you follow? Is he the one you serve? Don't be like those in Capernaum who, on seeing the real king, rejected him. Jesus will be glorified whether we accept him or reject him. He doesn't need us. He died for us so that the world might see how amazing he is, how good he is, how selfless he is, so that our names could be written in heaven. What does it mean to have true joy? It's to see the world through the lens of the kingdom of God. The king has come. He has died for you and for me. He has risen from the dead and shown us his compassion and mercy that we don't have to face what is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And those that treat him as king have their names written in heaven now. Immortal. Eternal. That is the joy we get to celebrate with the King who has come. So won't you tonight rejoice as you live your life through the hardships and ups and downs. Still look upward, not down, to where our names are fixed and serve our King. And if you are here thinking through who Jesus is, then tonight see what is before you as true joy. Life eternal with God that will never perish, spoil or fade. What more could we possibly want? Let's pray. Father God, tonight we want to thank you so much for the joy you have shown us in your son Jesus. We want to thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices to experience joy or happiness, but that you have provided them so clearly in your son that your compassion and your peace has been made known that we might know your king. Lord, we confess that we forget how amazing it is that we see and hear things that kings and prophets throughout ages long to know that Jesus is the promised king, that he has brought your kingdom in and that he will return and that eternity is on offer for those who trust him. Father, we ask that we would so orient our lives that we might live with Jesus as the king of every area, that you might use us plainly proclaim the news of this King who has come. Lord, and we plead that you would raise up many, many more workers for the harvest that is abundant. Help us to think through how we might be used, not because of anything we have, but because of who you are for your glory. Lord, we long for your glory's sake that more and more and more people in this city and this country and this earth Treat Jesus as he deserves to be, as he is the king of the universe. We pray he will be the king of our lives this day and forevermore. Amen.